Hi, my name is Kayla Imrasek, and I'm a member of the production team for Equity Rising, the podcast from King County Equity Now. In this episode, our host Trey has a conversation with Antony Von Saul, writer at Tattoo Magazine, a prominent French LGBT plus magazine that's on a mission to make the world more gay. Antony is also a co-host of the podcast Extimate, which features interviews with individuals subject to systemic oppression due to their gender identity, sexuality, body, or mental condition. In this episode, Antony and Trey discuss the experiences of being Black and queer in Paris, representation in the fashion industry, intersectionality, and the racism and racial justice movements in France. We hope you enjoy, and thanks for listening to Equity Rising. Welcome, everybody, to Equity Rising. I'm your host, Trey Holiday, and I am so elated. We have another global guest with us today, and it is exciting to welcome Anthony Vincent of France. And you do so many different things. We're going to be jumping into all of the amazing work you do. But thank you so much for joining us on Equity Rising, Anthony. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, it's exciting for me when we have our global guests. We like to do first things first. And that is, we got to ask, how are you taking care of yourself? I'm doing well. I'm taking well care. I'm really well rested. I have a full ass uh, beauty regimen. Like, it's so relaxing for me. I do a lot of exercise. I do French boxing with kicks and fists three times a week. So it helps me to stay calm and uh, to let off steam. So yeah, I'm really well. Look, now that sounds amazing. A lot of the times, you know, we realize that during COVID, it is changing a lot of our regimens. So I love hearing that you have an amazing regimen for yourself. Kudos to you, my friend. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, we're going to get into this because you do a lot of different work, but I want to start off kind of in the beginnings, like what got you into, you know, being a journalist, what made you even think about that? Because you have your podcast, but you also write for other magazines. So we want to hear about your beginnings. What got you into the work you do? Yeah, so I'm a French journalist from Paris. I'm 27 years old. I'm a black gay man and I write for many magazines, as you said, French fashion magazine, but also feminist magazine, but also queer magazines since like I was 22 years old. I studied at La Sorbonne University in Paris. And since then, I'm a full-on journalist. I also have a, a podcast that I co-founded with Douce Dibondo. She's a Congolese bisexual cisgender woman. And we do co-host a podcast, which is called Extimité, which means extimacy in a way, like intimacy, but towards the world. <laughs> you do a lot, clearly. As you just named off so many different publications that you write for, how did you get connected to all of the magazines that you work for? Yeah, I, I was at La Sorbonne University and I was a trainee for many magazines such as Grazia, Le Figaro, Madame Figaro, which are fashion magazines uh, in French, in France, sorry. And that's how I put a foot into this world. And then um, as a journalist, as a freelancer, I try to, to sell works to different magazines. And as a gay man myself, I wanted to write about what it's like to be black and gay in France about 
the queer community, but also the racism in this community and how we can fight that and fight this homophobia that can exist in uh, Black communities also. So let's face our problems and solve them together. So that's how I put my foot into this world of media. <laughs> wow. You know, it's so amazing to me because as we were getting to know each other on our other call, it was so apparent how connected our struggles are all over the world. It doesn't matter if you're in the U.S., if you're in France. I mean, we're dealing with a lot of the same issues and we have a lot of homophobia, transphobia in our community as well. What are some of the things that you feel you've been able to do to push the needle forward so people understand the need to eradicate transphobia and homophobia? Yeah, I try to write a lot about those things with people who are concerned about those things, with people who live those issues, such as transgender people and uh, queer people in general, into my writing, but also throughout the podcast, Extimité, we invite guests who can tell their stories about being transgender or being a lesbian or being a, a gay man or stuff like that. And also keeping in mind intersectionality, which can help us understand the specificities of those issues in France, in this context, when you are, can be queer and a person of color, what does happen in France where homophobia and racism can interact and create more problems or issues or very, very specific issues, which we can call misogynoir, for example, which is a combination of sexism and racism when you are a black woman. So we talk about that into extimité, but I also talk about that throughout my articles where I can interview like the woman who embodies the fight against structural racism in France today, who is called Assa Traoré. She is really leading this movement in France today. And I had the chance, the opportunity to interview her to make her work being aware, more recognized and more accessible. So that's my work. <laughs> wow. You know, we do a lot of similar things because I think that the answers and the experts really are within our community. We see yeah. people, yeah, stepping up to help educate others in the large masses of people. And that is something that is really at the center of my work here with King County Equity Now is You know, we need more education out there in the streets. And, you know, honestly, when we're talking about racism, it is a real thing that plagues all of our communities all over the world. If you are black, there are certain areas of racism and structural racism that you're going to deal with. What are some of the ways that you've experienced racism in France? Yeah, this is a really tricky question for France because French people act like racism doesn't exist, as if it was something from the past that we eradicated, but it's not the case at all. They act like a colorblind philosophy. And as a French West Indian guy in France, living in France today, I grew up in the suburbs and it's really full of people of color, but full of uh, racism also from policemen and governments. So we have... Uh, this is a tricky question uh, because it has a lot to do with colonialism because we are not yet a post-colonial society, but French people act as if we were. Um, I remember being uh, identity checked by policemen when I was only 12 years old. 
I remember my little brother being beaten up by policemen when he was only 14 years old. I remember being ethnically profiled by security guards everywhere. So yeah, since I was a little kid, so there's structural racism everywhere. And as in the US, it's different, but similar in a way, in so many ways, as you just said. Wow. That's the thing that pains my heart sometimes to understand. It doesn't matter where we are, that it really is on us to continue to work and fight towards liberation for us all. Because ultimately, you said it there, Antony, that, you know, this colonialism, the ideals that came with colonialism, honestly, are a major driver for so much of the caste system we see when we're talking about, you know, classes and races and ethnicities and putting them on some type of, you know, hey, you're better than this one or this one's better than that one. It really is unfortunate that we have to live through all of this. And one of the things that I think has really inspired me about how you guys deal with things in France is you guys are not quiet about these issues. You guys will take to the streets and protest when you see injustice, when it's felt. And I really want to ask you, because we just experienced, uh, you know, all of these global protests after George Floyd's murder. And I think it just kind of wrecked the world in terms of we're tired of seeing this. I know the issues in the U.S., permeate throughout. But how is it there? Because you guys do protest a lot and it seems like you guys get out there and fight injustice often. But how does it play out there? Yeah, it's really complicated because maybe in the US, it looks like you can speak about it, about white supremacy, about racism, about structural racism. But in France, it's really a big, big, big taboo. We don't talk about racism at all. Like we act like it doesn't exist at all. And uh, it's why we have to go into the streets and protest against that because it's such an issue and an invisibilized one. So I remember in 2005, two teenagers died of electrocution in a transformer station where they had taken refuge because policemen were hunting them. They were like 16 years old or even little. And the death sparked the 2005 French riots in the suburbs where young people were revolting against ethnic profiling about police brutality and against structural racism, basically. It was like 25,000 rioters protesting in the streets and burning some cars, I admit, (laughs) which is so French because rioters were not white. So the media didn't call it a revolt, but a riot, which says a lot. But nothing changed at all after those 2005 riots. So even though a 2009 study said that Black and North African people were eight times more likely to be stopped by police than white people, for example. And we have so many studies talking about racism, but it's such a taboo because, uh, yeah, we don't talk about it. And I remember... In uh, 2016, Asad Traoré, which I mentioned earlier, who embodies this fight against racism today. In 2016, she lost her little brother because three policemen tried to arrest him with the same chokehold that killed Eric Garner in the US. And he said the same thing in French that Eric Garner, he said he can't breathe, he can't breathe seven times. And policemen killed him anyway. And this was not the first time. And we had many other cases after Adama Traoré's death. 
But since 2016, his big sister, Asa Traoré, she doesn't quit his right there in the streets every year, every month, protesting against racism, structural racism, against police brutality. So we don't have any more choices. We have to go in the streets and to be heard. We have to shout. We have to organize. We have to do community works. And that's what she's doing. And I try to help her, for example. <laughs> and we are so many people organizing and caring about each other and fighting those injustice. Wow. One of the things you also said to me is that because you guys get out in the streets, the government just doesn't even take it seriously. Yeah, it doesn't at all. Like Asa Traoré, she is protesting since 2016. And even now we don't have justice. We don't have peace. The government and the policemen and the law people lied many times about Adama Traoré's case. Even the New York Times wrote an article about that because it was so obvious, like they were lying so obviously. But even now we don't have justice, we don't have peace and we are still in the streets. But now we are connecting a lot more with social media, with community works, with organizing our forces to fight racism. So the government can't ignore us anymore. They don't have a choice now. We have such a big voice. So now they can't ignore us anymore. Oh, I'm getting so filled right now because honestly, that is exactly the ways that we are moving here. I think in the U.S., particularly up here in the Pacific Northwest with, you know, King County Equity now bringing organizations together to say, no, if we fight all of this on a collective front, you know, like together, we're so much stronger and Clearly, there's a lot of voices in France that are now saying, look, we can't just expect for people to get it right. We have to show them what that is. And, you know, honestly, when we talk about police brutality, you know, the ways that you were just describing those situations and examples in France, we have so many here. I think that when we think about the global efforts of so many folks that are trying to ensure people understand all of this in the ways that is necessary for us to come together to make some real change. It's phenomenal. But but also, it's one of those things where it feels like it's a sign of the time. So I just thank you for giving us those examples because it really showcases the connectivity of all of our issues globally And how we're getting out and we're really demanding equity. I think that's really what it is when we talk about it. That's why I love the, the term of equity now, because it really goes for everywhere. One of the things I talk about often on this podcast is that equity needs to be infused in everything. You know, you're saying, look, I'm a gay, proud black man, you know, Frenchman and You're writing for fashion magazines and you're able to infuse that into fashion. How do the two intersect when you're thinking about some of the ways that equity needs to also be brought into the fashion industry? Yeah, that's a good question, because, for example, in the fashion world, we have like four big cities who showcase fashion shows. So New York, London, Milan and Paris. And in the U.S., the CFDA said something about racism, like said, oh, enough is enough. Now we are going to do some progress. We have to have goals to achieve. London said the same thing. They had like actions, four big actions to do. Milan said the same thing, but Paris said nothing at all. 
Because again, friends act like nothing is wrong. So I, for example, for a big magazine who will be released next month, I wrote an article about this silence, this French silence about racism in the fashion industry. Because even in fashion, if you are black, maybe you are cool on a runway, but you are ignored backstage. You are neglected if you are a designer, if you are a model, if you are a journalist. So it's really, really hard to, to thrive and to work hard. So, for example, if you are a black fashion designer in France, we have so, 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 so little uh, examples, like maybe five fashion black designers. But among them, if you are a black fashion designer, you are treated as an emerging designer forever and always, even though you are working for 20 years. So it's really, really hard. And when we have like one fashion designer who succeed, for example, Olivier Roustan at Balmain, a big fashion house, Olivier Roustan is like the exception that justify the, the role because he's the only one. So French people are like, oh, racism doesn't exist because we have Olivier Roustan, but it's not a proof. It's only an exception. So this kind of thinking, I write a lot about this because it's so structural. Fashion is such a good example because it intricated with entertainment industry, with the cinema, with the culture, with the economy, because fashion is so important for French economy. So it's like a soft power because everyone everywhere knows Chanel, for example, or Dior. But those kind of big fashion houses are rooted in colonialism because the fabrics, the, the workforces, everyone and everywhere, this is rooted into colonialism and post-colonial economy. So it's really, really a big mirror of those issues, those social issues. And it's really interesting because it speaks to so many people because everybody get clothes. <laughs> so everybody can understand where cotton comes from, where silk comes from, where clothes are made in uh, poor countries throughout the world, into Asia, into Africa, into ex-colonies. So it's really interesting because it speaks to so many people. Yeah, I agree so much. Thank you for explaining that because, you know, sometimes for me, I've wondered, we talk about Black folks as, you know, globally, the number one consumers, and yeah. we will buy the fashions. We will spend money on name brands. We want our children and ourselves to, you know, look and feel a certain way. And I, I do think that there is a bit of a dichotomy with that because we get treated so badly, right? But yet we got to make sure we look as if we don't get treated so badly. It yeah. is this constant thing. And yet what you just said there is so key because there aren't a lot of Black fashion designers that we can look up to even in the U.S., right? It's still, you know, people wanting to wear Yves Saint Laurent or, you know, like you just said, Chanel or Dior. I mean, these are the kinds of names that still resonate in the U.S., it still goes back to colonialism. And yet, even though we know that these, you know, main brands are run and often owned by, you know, white folks, we still spend so much of our paychecks or whatever to try to connect to that or to maybe be a part of it or to feel that we are accepted there. I just wonder from your perspective and seeing it on the other side, is that something that you also see when it's like, you know, Black people flocking to buy these fashions? 
Yeah, totally. Because even like in the French hip hop industry, people are like making songs about buying Gucci, Saint Laurent, Dior and Balmain. Those are jokes. But this is really interesting because we still, as black people being mistreated, we still respect those names and those brands even though they are rooted into colonialism and the idea of luxury and prestige is rooted into colonialism. If you think about it, it can give you vertigo because like the vanilla, the tobacco, the silks, the cotton, everything is from colonialism. And those big fashion houses made coins and thousands and thousands of dollars exploiting those forces and those uh, clothing and those materials. So it's really interesting, even in France, like, yeah, we still uh, buy into this idea of luxury, which is rooted into white supremacy. I remember reading a, a sentence by the guy who invented free public schooling for everyone in France. He's called Jules Ferry. In 1884, he said, the higher races have a right over the lower races. They have a right to civilize the inferior races. So this is rooted into our culture, into our way of thinking, into our way of seeing what is right and what is strong and what is powerful and beautiful. We still like buy white supremacy. <laughs> oh man, that was so beautiful how you wound that together because you're absolutely right. Again, the similarities of what we're talking about and how we experience things from all over in Washington state right here to where you are in France, it's actually really stark for me. And that's why I really have been enjoying all the guests on this podcast. And I think that the global guests really helped me understand how connected we actually are when it comes to our issues. So I'm just so appreciative of everything you're really saying to make our audience understand that these issues persist no matter really where we are. I want to jump into a bit of your childhood because I know you were raised in the suburbs in France and I want the audience to get an understanding of what that was like for you in terms of the suburbs there. Yeah, yeah. The suburbs in France are very interesting because since anti-colonial movements in France, people from ex-colonies such as Martinique, where I come from, in the Caribbean, but also West Africa and North Africa started to settle down in France, mostly in the suburbs of big city like Paris. And that's why there are so many people of color in the suburbs, because urbanism politics planned to mass them there. But those are really poor neighborhoods since the 50s. And with many frictions, many vandalism and insecurities. And the far right uses the image of the suburbs full of people of color to fuel racism. So I grew up there in the 90s in this very multicultural context. When I was there, I saw the the 2005 uh, riots against racism. I saw the Adama Traoré's death, how it sparked so many riots against racism also. And I felt safe as a black gay man there, but I was afraid of police actually, not afraid of homophobia or queerphobia in general. I was afraid of policemen. My mother was always worried and she still worry every day because I'm black in France and uh, 
as it is in America, I guess, when you are black in America, you're not safe at all. Like James Baldwin himself went to Paris, went to France and said, oh, I'm also a Negro there. And it's really interesting because I thought I would flee my condition of a black gay man when I flee the US. But uh, even in France, I'm still a Negro. So yeah, I grew up in those suburbs full of people of color, but with so much racism. Suburbs are maybe uh, the epicenter of what racism can look like in France. <laughs> but yeah, um, I laugh, but it's nervous. <laughs> right, right. I mean, yeah, because what you're talking about is so true, Antony, that these are our lived experiences, right? And so I say this often because we look at numbers and sometimes we look at data and it's like, okay, we understand that this is what it looks like when we're talking about wealth and the racial wealth gaps. Right. Okay. So here in Seattle, the average white household is like 170,000 and the average black household is like 42,000. Right. It's just stark. It's just a stark difference. And it may be like 102,000 for average white, but either way, there's a huge gap between white household income and black household income. And we see these numbers all the time. But I think when we see them on a graph, it's like, oh, man, that's messed up. But when you live it every day, that's a whole other thing. And, and yeah, trying to get allies to understand that and bring it out in a way that still allows black folks to have the power that we have because we are brilliant and we help to build this entire world, right? When you start thinking about it globally. And I think that it's important because without the free labor of so many, colonialism couldn't have even succeeded the way that it did. And that's why it's important to always uplift the beginnings, right? How do you guys do that there in France? Because I know here we talk about the slave era, but we talk about it in the Black community with a terms of endearment of, you know, the sacrifice that our folks had to make back then when we're always thinking about our ancestors. How do you guys incorporate the ideas of your ancestors on French land there for future generations and current generations? That's a really good question. And as you just said, in France, we don't really have data. We don't really have racial data. We have many studies, but they don't really said, oh, Black people are poorer than white people. It's more trickier than that. We don't really have data because we can't say racist. We can't say, oh, black people or white people. It's taboo. It also have an impact into education because public education in France is mandatory. It's a good thing. But we don't really talk about slavery that much. Like we talk about that maybe one or two months into your 16 years old. So it's really short and uh, we just say, oh, we did slavery and let's move on. <laughs> and that's it. That's really it. And uh, even if you are into Guadeloupe or Martinique in the French West Indies, they just said, oh, yeah, your ancestors were slaves. And that's it. We don't have like community education that much. We just have public education and into public education, you don't have like a lot of education about races and especially not colonialism and slavery and how much it made it into French history and culture. But yeah, we try to change that because uh, people from ex-colonies, from North Africa, from Asian countries, from West Indies, we organize and we do just like you, like a podcast, because it's free, accessible for so many people. 
And you can get education by yourself because nobody is going to get you the knowledge to, to help fight what they are sitting on. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. I'm so inspired because honestly, you realize how important it is for us to pick up the torch, you know? Yeah, nobody's going to do it for us. And we talk about that for often sure. here too. You know, sometimes when people talk about a top-down approach, like, oh, well, you know, the government has the resources and they'll get to the people eventually, you know? They'll trickle down to the people. And we're like, that trickle down never happened. You know what I mean? It still is not happening. It's not really a method that can be utilized to ensure that people are, you know, living their best lives. For this week's Chime In, we'll be joined by Misha, a non-binary queer musician, and Skylar, a queer artist and performer. Misha and Skylar are dating, met in Seattle, and recently moved down to Atlanta. Antony shares a little bit about what it's like to be Black and queer in Paris today. So we sat down with Misha and Skylar to talk about their experiences in Seattle and Atlanta. Folks don't even register you as queer. And so immediately they see you as like aggressive, homophobic, like all these things, because there's almost this impossibility in in white folks' minds to like see you as anything beyond like black first. Like a lot of times white folks wouldn't even register like that we were queer. In Seattle, we experienced trying to connect in the community, you know, and um, in spaces that were mostly white, they couldn't get past that we were black. So we can't like go out and have fun and hang out at a place or whatever because like the energy in the room is now stank because mm-hmm. they're reacting to us being there not because we're there if anything we're bringing the shit up yeah we're elevating value or the environment doesn't even feel inviting to us going out into spaces that are supposed Functions, to be for everybody things. for all queer bodies i'm thinking about like pride weekend like pride events in seattle are you definitely know that they're not for you. you she would yeah. go into these like spaces and like we too queer for the black spaces to black for the white spaces. And it's interesting because now we're in Atlanta. We're around hella black folks. And so that's been like, it's been like coming home. And it's like had that element of I'm coming home or I'm around people who look like me and I still can't manage to feel like, oh, I'm being other. I'm being other because y'all can tell I'm, I'm different or I'm, I'm some type of gender queer. I'm some type of not cisgender what's looked at as normal people say a lot of cis straight black people's like you're black first before mm-hmm. you gay mm-hmm. and i'm like like don't be proud of anything else because this is like this is how we unite this is this is how we're united and like i'm proud and love it all together like all together a kid asking they parent what I am loudly and then they parent loudly being like I don't know what it is and then I'm having a dialogue about me how do you how are we still in this age of 2021, <laughs> telling people, I just don't agree right. with your lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I just don't accept it. There's nothing to agree or yeah. accept. Like, I will beat your ass. What are you talking about? Like, it, it, I am here. You can't right. disagree you can't with disagree. me. I'm, I'm here. here. I've literally arrived some years ago and like, yeah. So the problem is with you mm-hmm. and like, you're making it my problem. And that's, being black and being queer is never the problem. I love it. We love it. It's mm-hmm. it's all over where we are mm-hmm. in the world that we make. It's how people react to us mm-hmm. that makes it all so heavy. That's why the spaces that we create for each other are so sacred. That's why they're so important. It's 
what we have, we live on the extreme because of the reactions to people and they don't even realize it. Like we just want simple things and y'all make our lives. Every time we step out of the house, the stakes are so high. And I'm finding like the, there there are moments where like today I was talking to, to my trainer and he's like, you know, as your straightest guys, guys you can get. And I'm like, you know, I, I'm like, you know about trans things? What do you know? And he was like, I'm not going to lie to you. You know, I don't know much about it, but I, I really want to learn. Like, just like that, you know? And I was like, that, if people could just have that energy around it, you know? Trying to, we're going to find, I mean, COVID is happening. So it's right. just hard to find where we are, where where we at. Because I know we're there. We, we see them right. there. We see, we we see out. We see it. Like, we see like, we're like, we're like, Huge thank you to Misha and Skylar for sharing a part of their story. And now, back to the interview. You know, one of the Africatown's models, another organization I work with, is that, hey, our people need to live and thrive in place. We're disrupting gentrification. And that's one of the things I want to ask you, too, because when you talk about the suburbs being, you know, predominantly black, but still feeling that, you know, insecurity around police and that fear around police, that's something that we dealt with in the inner cities here in the States. And then now we have the inner cities being the gems and they're coming in in the droves and they're disrupting all of the culture that we had in so many inner cities throughout America. And the central district in Seattle is one of them. And how has that worked in France? Are you guys also dealing with, you know, kind of gentrification where, you know, they kind of come in, they see your area now is profitable. And so, hey, they start putting up, you know, luxury apartment complexes or luxury condominiums so that it makes it unaffordable for folks to live where they grew up? Yeah, totally. It happens in France too, around Paris especially, and also a city in the south of France, which is called Marseille. But in Paris, it's really sparking because, as you mentioned, we have a lot of gentrification in the suburbs. The suburbs, the little cities around Paris, which were predominantly Black and North African people, are becoming more and more expensive because Paris is so, so, so expensive. So white people, even white people have to go into the suburbs, even though they find it like ghetto and they say, oh, it's a no-go zone, but they get there and put their children into private school and they profit, they buy a house for little money and they put their children into a private school so they don't have to mingle with the black and North African people. And then they call it today. They say, oh no, we are not racist because we live in the suburbs and we have a house there. But we put our children into a private school anyway. <laughs> so they just act like nothing is wrong with it. But nobody is stupid. Like we just get it. You, you're just getting there to, to get richer and richer. Like you're just too poor for Paris, but you come into our suburbs and just said, Oh yeah, you, you too ghetto. You know, <laughs> let's get higher. That, that's so wrong. That's so wrong. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is how important it is to connect our issues because I think this is why we see this is not just an issue in one area, right? And sometimes I think when we're dealing with it, we're dealing with it because we have to attack our community, 
our streets. We have to at first secure our streets before we connect globally. But I'm hearing from so many of the guests through Equity Rising podcast that the real need is for us to figure out a global way of connecting everything. Because when we talk about folks from the global majority that are experiencing these disparities, when we even say global majority, it is clear that we are the majority when we come together, right? That there's a real opportunity to connect our struggles in a way that brings about real change. And I'm just, I'm, I'm very moved and inspired by that. One of the things that I think we also deal with here in the U.S., and I want to ask you about this in France, is we also deal with folks that are Black that, you know, hey, they've made it to a certain degree, right? They went to the right schools, they got the right jobs, they got the right influences, they are making great money. And so even though they're Black, they're not really willing to disrupt what they feel they have in order to really fight this struggle. And so we talk about like black bourgeoisie or, you know, we say they're a part of some elite class or they think they are, and they think that they've transcended enough that their skin color doesn't matter as much, right? Like, oh, I'm a, you know, CEO at a Fortune 500 company. I make millions of dollars. I'm also participating in the stock market. I have several properties. Whatever it is that makes them feel like they made it means then that, the issues of their blackness don't affect them maybe as much, even though they deal with all of these things about microaggressions. They probably deal with a lot of different racist acts, but because they can go home to a million dollar mansions or something like that, that there's this need to not fight because they've made it. So I'm going to ask you about that. Do you guys also have this kind of black elite class in France? It's less visible because we don't organized that much because we have like so many rivalities, like a kind of competition between black people, between many black communities in France, because we have like black people from the West Indies. We have black people from West Africa, black people from East Africa. And we have like so many different history. This is a big difference with black people in the US because you are from many, many generations. You are here for a long, long time. But we have still a lot of like different waves of immigrations and with different stories and different aspirations. So it puts a lot of competition between black people. But with this competition, we also, just like you said, have a little bit of a black bourgeoisie. But this black bourgeoisie doesn't shout about their success because there are so, 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 so little people. Like maybe you can count them on just one hand. And they are, again, I just, as I said, like the exceptions, that proof it's a rule. They are the exceptions. But yeah, we have like this kind of black bourgeoisie who said, oh yeah, I made it so racism doesn't exist. Oh, I made it so I don't have to fight for you. Like just work hard. You have to work twice as hard to get half of what they get. But uh, it's okay. I made it. So do it yourself by yourself. But no, it's not okay. Because when they will have a children, their child will face racism also when they go to school or when they want to study abroad or... Yeah, if you are in the wrong neighborhood at the wrong time, people only see your color. They don't see your expensive watch or your expensive suit. Like, if they want to shoot you, they're going to shoot you. <laughs> this is structural racism and money can't get you away from racism. That's right, because there's no way to change your skin color. Like, I mean, 
folks have tried, but it it doesn't work. So I agree with you there. I mean, this is why to me, when we talk about equity being infused in everything, it is because so much of the world has been built to ensure that, you know, the colonizers all over the world really retain majority of the wealth. And I loved hearing what you said earlier in connecting that to the fashion industry and how it really ties back to colonialism when we talk about the materials that are used and all of that, that again, there are certain founding families that still are receiving so much profits because we do use cotton the way we do, or we do use silk the way that we do. And I I agree with you wholeheartedly there. I think it's really interesting to me to understand more of the nuances when we start tying a lot of industry, major industry now, back to colonialism and to the families that spread it and how they have protected their wealth over time. So this has been phenomenal. I I know that you also were able to travel quite recently to Seattle, and I want to hear about your experience because that's really exciting that that was the first time you came to the U.S. You came right here to my hometown. How was that for you, seeing how we are up here? Yeah, yeah. I went to the U.S., to Seattle for the first time in 2019, and it was for an article I was writing for the major your gay magazine in France, which is called Tetu, which means stubborn. So Tetu sent me to Seattle to see how Trump will get reelected or not and how people felt about it. So I went there and I was sleeping into a hostel and I was like going in the street, talking to people like gay people, transgender people, homeless people and talking to them trying to, to understand how, how the climate was, how the political and social climate was about gentrification also, because you have in Seattle so many startups like Starbucks and Microsoft and stuff like that, big companies who are coming there and uh, make their houses becoming more and more expensive. So it's really interesting. And I was there for like five days and I went into gay clubs also <laughs> just to understand how it works and how people feel. And I remember taking taxis, for example, and uh, talking to black people who were coming from East Africa. And we don't have many East African in, in France because of immigration and colonialism. And it was really interesting to see the difference, but so many, many, many similarities between your struggles and your success and our struggles and our successes. And yeah, I went there and I meet up with your friend, uh, David, and it was really interesting because he's a dancer and a choreographer and he take me into his uh, dance company and it was really funny and I understand a lot of things thanks to him. (laughs) That's awesome. I'm glad that you enjoyed Seattle and got to see a bit of what we have going on over here. So that is amazing. Glad that you got with someone like David, you know, prominent gay man in our Seattle scene and especially with regard to the arts. So I love that. Sounds like you were in the right company (laughs) honestly, while you were here. So that's amazing. And yeah, we do have a lot of East Africans here. It's very much a prominent factor when we think about the diversity of Seattle in the pockets there. We've been doing a lot of work recently to connect more so that, you know, I think there was a bit of a misnomer, right? Because we we're hearing and I've been learning a lot about, hey, when a lot of Africans come over here and they migrate to 
America, they are told, you know, hey, don't mess with black people, black Americans, like they're lazy, they're thugs, they're this, they're that. And they're told a bunch of stories, honestly, to try to like disassociate themselves from American black folks. And as people have been telling me their stories and how, you know, yeah, when I was in the immigration room, they were telling me this when I was over here and I was trying to get my paperwork situated. I kept hearing these stories and I'm like, wow, you know, like there is a real direct attack to ensure that we do not connect ourselves as just black people. Right. And that right there is something that internally in the community, we're working to make sure that we break down those barriers because it's complete nonsense, first of all. And second of all, the ideas around how much stronger we are together, that's what it feels like they were trying to disrupt. I know you were talking before with me about how, you know, you're connecting with so many different people. You said it here earlier, you know, Asians, Africans and Frenchmen there. How do you guys bring your struggles together to try to create a collective voice in France? Thanks to my podcast, for example, which is called Extimité, we do a lot of community work because every episode is a different person who come and tell her story and say, how is it going for her or there against racism and queerphobia, etc. And uh, also those guests, they are, they have so many talents, like maybe they are shrinks or maybe they are yoga teacher or maybe they are voguing dancer from the ballroom scene and After those podcasts, after those episodes, we do like a self-care day where we make so many conferences and talks about intersectionality and racism and sexism and queerphobia and how we can tackle that and uh, succeed from that, thrive after that. And we also do like yoga lessons and meditation and uh, voguing classes So we are taking care of ourselves. We are taking care of each other and we are getting educated together. We do like conferences and talks, as I just said. So it's really interesting because it helps us getting organized. And yeah, we care about ourselves in a way. We are like curators of self-care and education. And this is all small little work. <laughs> But we also have like so many... Uh, non-governmental organizations, but I don't really work with them from time to time. But Extimité is my main focus because it's little, it's local, and I can see how it's working and I can really, really take care of people and each other. And we are getting uh, links between Asian people in France and Black people in France and North African people in France and transgender communities, the lesbian community, etc., etc. We are like just like Oh, we are the majority because we have so many minorities, as you were just saying. And yeah, if we think about it, we are stronger together. <laughs> it can sound cheesy, but it's the truth and we have to get it. We have to understand it and to work from there. I agree. I agree so much. This has just been so enlightening, Antony. And I... Honestly, I can't wait until like COVID subsides a bit so I can come and visit you in France because honestly, I love the work that you yeah. are doing. Yeah. <laughs> Is there anything else like how? Because it's a podcast and I'm sure it's all in French, but we can figure out a way to get it translated. How can our audience connect with your podcast and connect with your work? Yeah, um, 
actually, maybe we will do some episode in English in the future. But the podcast is uh, available on every platforms like uh, Apple Podcast or Spotify. It's called Extimité. Maybe you will be able to write it in your description of this episode of Equity Rising. Also, my name is Anthony Vincent. And I am on Twitter, Instagram, etc., etc. And my handle name is Anthony VNCT, just in a one big uh, word. And maybe you will write it down too. And that's it. <laughs> oh, amazing. I'm, a, I'm everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so glad that we are connected now, Anthony. And I look forward to building relationship with you. This is just the start. You know, this episode right here is really a start. If you ever do an episode in English, I'd love to join you on Extimite for sure. And uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll continue to build because I do think it is important that we start looking at this from a global perspective and understanding the ways that we can connect and combine our efforts. Because right now, I feel like colonialism still thinks it's winning because we're working in silos a bit. And we have to get the work done in our communities. And that is so understandable because we have a lot of issues we're, you know, facing. And so it's important that we make sure our communities are solid. But Also, overall, I'm excited to start building a global network of equity change makers who are doing this work in their communities and bringing it to a larger sense so that people understand we are here. We are proud of who we are. We come together. It does not matter what your gender is, what you identify as. None of that matters. The fact of the matter is that Globally, we're stronger together. I, I appreciate your time with us on Equity Rising today. I have been so informed and educated through you, and I am so appreciative that you were able to take some time to give our audience a glimpse at what being Black in France is about. And I appreciate you so, so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate you so much too. And your podcast and your work, it's really amazing. And as you just said, yeah, we can be both. We can think local, act locally and organize locally, but also understand how it's working globally and organizing globally. And yeah, you are doing an amazing job. And uh, thank you. You're inspiring me too. So, so much. So thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, Antonine. We will definitely be in touch. That was another episode of Equity Rising, y'all. I am elated to be able to have this amazing discussion with Antony Vincent. You guys, we will make sure that we put his podcast and his handles in our description box so that you guys can also connect because it is important, again, as I just said, that we find ways to bring all of the struggles together. Thank you for listening to Equity Rising. Thanks for listening to Equity Rising. Our next episode will be out next week, Thursday. Subscribe to get new episodes as soon as they come out. And if you enjoy the podcast or have learned something from these conversations, please tell your friends and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can follow King County Equity Now and Trey Holiday on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Thanks for tuning in.